ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, this is Tom Gilson, and to introduce today's episode, I'm going to get briefly a little bit personal with you, and I promise not too personal, but just that this week I had my annual physical with all of the annual lab tests that go with it. And my goodness, there's a lot of them. I'm sure there could have been a lot more. And they come back with all these numbers that tell you whether you fit into the narrow range that indicates whether you are healthy or not. Today on ID the Future, Dr. Howard Glicksman, a physician and co-author with Steve Laufman of the book Your Designed Body, speaks with Pat Flynn, a philosopher and podcaster, about those numbers and about so much more, the amazing ways in which your body and every other living organism can control everything from calcium to hemoglobin to iron to oxygen, and just what it would have taken for evolution to have produced that by natural means. It's a medically-based perspective that really shows our bodies are intelligently designed. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Howard Glicksman. We're going to talk about just how amazing the human body is and what are some of the larger implications of just the really, I think I'm comfortable saying the miracle of the human body in a, in a, you know, in a sense. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about that here today. Uh, Dr. Glitzman has a uh, really fascinating new book out there that is contributing to a topic that we have covered many times on this podcast, a controversial topic, but one that has fascinated me, and that's of intelligent design. So that's going to be the theme of today's episode. Uh, Howard, really great to have you here. Great to make your virtual acquaintance. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks a lot, Pat. It's great to be here. I just, and also to clarify also that the book, my, my co-author is an engineer and that's uh, Steve Laufman. Yep. Yeah. And we're going to mention more about the book and, and tease great. all that good stuff as we move forward here. But first, this is our first time talking. It's your first time on the show. So if you wouldn't mind, Howard, give us a, give us a little bit of your background, anything you think that is relevant for today's subject or otherwise. Yeah. Just, yeah, well, just have at it. Yeah. I'm originally from Toronto, uh, Canada. I lived, grew up there and was trained there. I went to medical school in Toronto, practiced. Uh, I'm a G, I'm a general practitioner and I practiced there for three or four years. Then I moved down to Florida, mm-hmm. mainly for the weather, you know, and we've, I've been in Florida over 40 years. I had a regular office hospital practice for about 20 years. And then I left that and started doing hospice work, mm. um, seeing patients, terminally ill patients, et cetera, in the home. Uh, since that time, uh, I still do hospice, but my wife and I moved down to Bradenton, Sarasota area about five or six years ago, and I made up this job that I'm at because what I've noticed in hospice is that uh, there's a lot of pe- people that can fall through the cracks. You know, they come on and uh, they're said to be terminal because, they, you know, they've had multiple medical problems. I like to tinker with them. And so the nurses know who to get me to see. And, and so I've, I've sort of uh, become, developed my own type of specialty with people with heart failure and fluid overload. I've been able to sort of reverse a lot of their oh, wow, situations and, and then discharge them. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, so that's my background uh, with respect to medicine. Um, and, uh, you know, that's. So let's let's all right, let's let's turn that uh, into uh, the theme of today's conversation, because my understanding from our, our brief exchange is that uh, you're somebody who yourself had a, a bit of a paradigm shift. What was your, yeah, what was your, what was your like wider philosophical paradigm growing up? Were you, were you religious growing up? Growing up, did you believe in God, maybe believed in God, but weren't religious? And then how did that evolve over time? And especially what role did uh, your training in medicine play in? in Yeah, sure. Well, um, I grew up in a secular Jewish household uh, where the name of God was never mentioned. 
Hmm. Uh, when I was about 14, this, this, uh, when I was about 14 in science, I remember biology being taught about Darwin and thinking to myself, well, I guess there's no God. Not that I really knew much about him at all. I did have a bar mitzvah, but about the year before that, mm-hmm. I wasn't like a radical atheist at all. I mean, I was involved in sports and school and, you know, having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And then about three or four years later, I'm sitting in my biology class. Um, the exercise for the day was just to read a couple of chapters. And uh, they, the one was on the eye and one was on the ear. And I read through them and looked at the parts, etc. And a little thought went into my mind and it said, there's no way this came from nothing. The Darwinists are over-extrapolating and over-simplifying things. And so from that moment on, I believed in a God or supreme being. Wow. I sort of became like an agnostic or a deistic type person. You know, I was gonna, I sort of gave God, okay, I'll give you that much. You created us, but <laughs> I'm going to continue on my way. And when I was about 18 or 19 years old, yeah. uh, married a Catholic who, uh, you know, was really into her faith. Had three children, had them brought up in the Catholic faith. It's funny because, you know, when you get married in the Catholic church and you're outside, uh, you're I'm Jewish or you're non-Catholic, I had to okay that um, I would say that they would they would be brought up Catholic. Be raised into faith, yeah. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, I mean, I grew up, I knew nothing about God. I, I want my kids to know something. And, of course, never realizing, maybe I should learn something now, even though I'm in my <laughs> 20s. You know? uh, and uh, anyway, so about then I, you know, Medical school, graduated, uh, you know, had, a, had an office practice. About 20 years later, I started searching for, uh, you know, what's got, you know, at that point, I think I was sort of just wondering what life was about. And of course, my experience in medical practice, dealing with death and dying, dealing with people, you know, at the, these times of their lives. Yeah. Uh, it's, I was witnessed to by many Christians where I remember thinking to myself, I got to get some of that. Like, you know, I'm not sure if I was in that position, even though I'm treating that patient, but if it was me suffering on the other, if I was in the bed there, I'm not sure how I would handle it. So of course. that brought me to the faith and I converted about three years ago, became a Catholic. Oh, and, just, wow. Just three years ago. No, no, wow. sorry. Did I say three? 30. Oh, 30. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Did I say three? Yeah. Three. Maybe I just misheard. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah I, uh, 30 years ago became Catholic and, uh, with respect to the intelligent design, um, it, it was, a few things happened, but uh, basically had a bit of a mystical experience. We were in a major car wreck about five or six years into our into my being a Catholic, where you know we were very lucky. I broke my back and I was in hospital for a few days up in Atlanta. And you know, if it, the fracture had occurred, it was if it was a higher up, I'd be a paraplegic, but it didn't. Wow. So I was back at the hospital telling people, all the doctors in the doctor's lounge, what had happened. I was wearing this corset. I had to wear it for six weeks like a turtle until my bones uh, healed. And I remember saying to one of them, uh, well, I guess I owe God big this time. A little voice went off in my head that said, you've owed God big since day one. And what have you been doing about it? And uh, (laughs) yeah, really. I mean, and that, you know, I started for the first time I started asking the Lord, like, okay, thank you for what you've given me. And what do you want me to do? And in, in pretty short order, things, you know, I started talking about end of life issues in my parish. I gave up the practice and started doing hospice work. And then I got exposed to intelligent design. It was, uh, I was, I was asked by a friend to go to a, uh, a C.S. Lewis Society meeting down in Clearwater. And um, I, I actually got there an hour late and I figured, well, you know, actually I thought it was going to be on young earth creationism and I wasn't, you know, too comfortable, but I came in there exactly an hour late, and my friend says, "Oh, you're you're in luck, Howard. Uh, the speaker was an exactly an hour late. He just flew in from Ohio, and uh, it was a guy named Charles Thaxton. Okay, if you've heard of him, is mm-hmm. uh, the mystery of life. I think is the book uh, he wrote back in '84 with uh, two other authors, and that's when I was exposed to Darwin's black box. 
And I started reading about intelligent design and I knew it was the truth. But I didn't, as I started reading about it, I started feeling that this was something I may be involved with, but it all came to a head about uh, a couple of years later, my son was got married in Wichita and I was talking to my, uh, to his new brother-in-law and we got talking about that around that time, Kansas was, you know, discussing Darwin and teaching and science, et cetera. And he just happened to mention to me, he says, you know, uh, I have an aunt and uncle that are physical anthropologists and to paraphrase what he said, it was more like, well, you know, they dig up bones and it helps with the understanding of human origin. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, you gotta be kidding me. They're still doing that. I mean, you know, you're looking at bones, you're looking at gross anatomy to decide the origin of man without considering, you know, the cells, the molecular structure, the fact that the calcium level in the blood has to be kept between eight and a half, 10 milligrams per deciliter. The fact that the Nerve gland, nerve gland and muscle cells all have very low concentration of calcium in there. And, and because they, they need calcium to flood in when they get stimulated to work properly. And then they have calcium uh, pumps in the cell membrane to pump it back out to be ready for the next, next time they get stimulated. And it, that would be like uh, trying to figure out the origin of an airplane by just looking at the cockpit, the wings, the tail, you know, tail section and the fuselage without considering things like modern metallurgy. Uh, electronics, jet propulsion, and aerodynamics, you know, mm, mm-hmm. uh, it just seemed. And so then I said, you know, I, and I said, people need to know this. So I've been writing about this uh, online for about 20 years. Wow. Most of my articles are on Access Research Network. Uh, Art Batson and Dennis Wagner were kind enough to let me write about that. So you can actually see the evolution of my writing mm. <laughs> over there. So that's how I got into it. Eventually got connected with Casey Luskin at Discovery Institute, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a uh, an eighty one part series on the uh, Evolution News from about February two thousand fifteen to September two thousand sixteen called the Design Body, and David Klinghoffer did a great job of editing all that. And uh, in the middle of that, uh, some guy named Steve Lofman uh, sent a note to uh, to to David said, Hey, I'd like to contact this guy. So we, we started emailing and eventually spoke with each other. And he says, we got to write a book. And he was an engineer, the doctor, and that's where it started. Uh, we actually started writing about this about five years ago. All right. Wow. Thank yeah. you so much for that background, Howard. That's really helpful and fascinating. So now to start diving a little bit deeper first, whenever I have a conversation on intelligent design, I always like to do a little bit of stage setting because there's a lot of misconceptions about what intelligent design actually is. I always like to say, hey, it's actually a pretty big tent, right? With a number of different positions in it. Uh, You mentioned, you know, young earth creationism. And of course, sometimes when people like to um, publicly attack intelligent design, they they sometimes like to, you know, identify the two, but that is not necessarily the case. There's many people who who are, you know, advocates of intelligent design that are fully committed to, you know, the old earth thesis and stuff like that. So I want to hear from you. Uh, what is what is your position in the camp of intelligent design? What are the things that you're committed to? And then, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, help us understand what what your thesis is, because I know that you have a specific thesis that you wanted to trot out in today's conversation yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when I talk about old earth creationism, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at everything outside biology. I, I'm thinking about the, you know, from the little limited stuff I've, I've read about, because, you know, I'm not a physical chemist. But my understanding is, you know, how old the earth really is. And I think it's based on, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, uh, potassium isotopes, you know, that they've been able to ca- calculate, just like the way you do calcium, excuse me, uh, carbon dating. I think that you, they, they can use the isotopes of potassium to determine uh, how, how old stones are, and et cetera. So 
Um, you know, I, I haven't dug into it really deeply, but of course, the young earth creationism is sort of connects with uh, the Bible, you know, the Genesis and uh, being a Catholic and St. Augustine, et cetera. You know, we were never committed to saying it had to be exactly, you know, the, the, those amount of days. Although I, I must say that the, uh, uh, the people that are young earth creationists, the scientists there have some, you know, they're, they're contributing so much to, to intelligent design as well. A lot of, a lot of the stuff, the, uh, the articles that they write, have, I've been found, found very helpful. Yeah. Now, so that's, so that's where I'm on that. It was mainly more the biology. I mean, I just, I don't really separate between the two. I mean, the thing is that, yeah, I, I guess either way, uh, Darwinism is the one that needs to be an old earth because they, they need all that time. And so, but, but if you got God and, you know, doing his thing, then you, it doesn't really matter what the time is. So it's really not a, a big issue for Right. Me. And this is something that Michael Behe likes to emphasize, right? He's like, what what really is doing a lot of all, or if not all of the sort of philosophical work that has a larger implications is the mechanism, right? It's Darwin's mechanism. And so with, you know, you mentioned Darwin's black box, but his, his other work, he's really kind of challenging that, that mechanism because, you know, evolution's an accordion term. It can mean many things, but the most interesting thing um, and I think he's right about this philosophically, is whether Darwin's mechanism is really adequate to explain the certain uh, features of the world that they need to be explained. He challenges that. And it sounds like that's sort of what you're going after yourself. Right. Most fundamentally. Is that right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. And so just to I, I've written this down. We talked before. I said, you know, you write you spend five years writing a book over 400 pages and then someone asks you the question, what's your thesis? You know, uh, <laughs> you sit there with your mouth you gotta, open. Right. <laughs> and, and you got to put it in. Well, you, you said, well, here's my book. I'd read it. You know, but but here here and I sort of a little jocular, but basically I said, you know, here it is. Our thesis is that once you understand not just how life looks, which is what Darwinism does, but how it actually works to stay alive and what it would have taken to build it from the ground up, it becomes abundantly clear that Darwin was dead wrong. Mm. Life came about by an intelligent agent, a mind at work and not the undirected random forces of nature, which is sort of what Michael Behe is referring to random excuse me, natural selection acting on random variation or genetic mutation. Yep. There is meaning to life because we were created for a purpose. So what I'd like to do, if you, if you just indulge me, is I want to give you, you and, and our audience, uh, your audience, a, um, an overview of how we actually, how we, you know, we come to this. The we have basically three perspectives of this thesis. This is how this book is built up. Yes, please. The, yes. The first perspective is the medical perspective. Of course, that's yours truly, right? Writing most of that. And this really comes down to control mechanisms. In other words, Goldilocks, the Goldilocks principle in action. In other words, everything has to be just right, because if it's not just right, you're dead. All right. Mm -hmm. So we look at things like chemical parameters, such as having enough, the right amount of oxygen, the right amount of water, the right amount of sugar, the right amount of salt, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. And once again, the most important thing to remember here is if any one of those is out of whack, you're dead. Okay. The second we set the second parameter is the physio physiological parameters like your blood pressure, your heart rate, your temperature. And once again, if they are too high or too low, they're not just right, not Goldilocks, you're dead. Mm -hmm. Then we look at something called dynamic capacity, such as regional blood flow. How do we make sure the blood goes where it's supposed to go? Mm -hmm. All right. Which organ need is the muscle needs is the heart needs, et cetera. Things like clotting and immunity, because if there, if I, any of these aren't working, I think you get the point. Okay. Yes. You're dead. I <laughs> like, like the no, theme, well, very I, high stakes. right? In fact, when I started writing about this years ago, that was my focal point. 
right? Because that's the only way to prove that Darwinism doesn't work. Because in, 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 in life, you find out the thing dies. Okay. They never talk about that. So the, the fourth, the fifth, that fourth aspect is we talked about, we look at the special senses and we could have gone through, we went through vision and hearing and, uh, you know, balance and movement. And then finally, we went through reproduction and development, right? So we start from the, from the zygote, well, fertility, actually, we go from the zygote and to the newborn. Now, you know, Steve Laughlin, I, you know, we've talked over the years. And one of the things he says is like, if, you know, we had to sort of limit what we could put in the book, right, with respect to medical stuff, because if we put everything in there, this would have, this book would have been on wheels, you know. So, you know, there's a limit to, and that, that was hard for us. So here's the key thing. So you got all these, this medical perspective, you're looking at all these things that have to be controlled. And then we add, we go into the engineering perspective, okay, like making it all happen, right? You know, and basically it comes down to solving hard problems. And this is very important. Um, what we're hoping people, when they read the book, whenever they encounter any molecule, protein, you know, uh, organic system, organ, whatever, they're going to ask themselves, besides how it looks, they're going to say, well, how does that work? Mm-hmm. What does it take to make it work? And then finally, how would I build that from the ground up? So that's the engineering question. And this is, this is the perspective I was hearing from Steve. So over the next four or five years, you know, we, we got, you know, I got to learn that perspective and, and it comes down to, we've, you have, you need what's called coherent interdependent systems. And what that means is it's a system that consists of many parts that are not, I know you're going to think about irreducible complexity. It is irreducibly complex. You've got all these parts together to perform a function that neither of the parts can function do on their own. However, on top of that, this is really, this book shows irreducible complexity on steroids because besides the parts, you have to make sure that the material specification is right. They have to have the right shape, the right position, the right interface. They have to be assembled properly. Okay. They have to perform their function properly, fast enough. Okay. Coordinated mm-hmm. enough. And also within a certain range, this is the fine tuning I think you referred to. Mm-hmm. So, so the, what becomes part of the engineering is after we show, and then all these systems are dependent, interdependent. So, you know, if you need oxygen, well, you need the lungs, but the lungs need blood supply and the blood needs, the, the heart need the heart is pumping the blood, but it needs oxygen too from the lungs. So they're all interdependent, right? And we can go into that later if you'll see. And, and finally, in the engineering section, what, what Steve points out is, okay, how do you, de- based on what engineering principles are, how do you design, build, launch, maintain, and reproduce coherent interdependent systems, right? So then after that, we take both of those together and then we get into causation, okay? How did this all come about? Uh, there's either, it comes down to one of two things. It's either materialism, in other words, material causes, it just happened, nature just made it happen on its own, there's no mind at work. Or there's an intelligent cause, mm-hmm. and uh, so Steve later in the book goes through a, you know, a critique of neo-Darwinism. Uh, with with uh, uh, spoiler alert, neo-Darwinism fails miserably. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You'll see, right? Common sense, you know, comes through. All right, yeah. And and so we we go through that, and then he presents actually a positive theory. This is not just what Paul Nelson calls boo Darwinism. In mm-hmm. other words, boo Darwin, like, okay, you can't prove this. It doesn't do this. Okay. So what do you have? Right. What's your alternative? And, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's part of the, that's part of the uh, thing about how this book got delayed. Cause we were probably ready about a year and a half. I had finished the writing on the medical stuff about a year and a half ago, but Steve working through the engineering research group at, at discovery Institute 
they were coming together with this theoretical. And I'm not a theory person. I, I never saw an equation that I didn't want to substitute for X, Y, and Z. I mean, I just can't. I'm not a theory person. I'm totally practical. I got to apply it. But Steve can do both, right? He's a theory person. He's a practical person. And so they came up with this theory, you know, this, this uh, theory of biological design, which is chapter 22. Yep. And, uh, and, that's, and then we leave it to the, the reader to say, okay, here's the information. You know, you, you obviously know where we're coming from, but we leave it up to them to make a decision on their own. In the last chapter, besides going through the uh, bad design, dysteleology chapter, the last chapter is really Steve writes it very well with respect to, okay, there's two questions, okay? Which is right, Darwinism or or, material, you know, or, or intelligent design? And number two is, do you like that or not? <laughs> okay. So, you know, you'll, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a great read. And I have to tell you, those last six chapters, all written by Steve, except maybe me helping out in the bad design part, they are powerful. So yeah. Very powerful. Well- Nothing if not comprehensive. So the so a very provocative, very clear thesis, one that I'm at least in very much broad agreement with. But yeah, where I really want to go with you now, Howard, is like start 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 laying it on us thick, if you don't mind. You know, you, you mentioned it's like irreducible complexity on steroids. I don't think, and I'm one of these people who who probably fully appreciates just how intricate and awesome at the end of the day the human body actually is so you're the expert here you guide us where what are the sorts of examples that you like to begin to impress upon people in this department okay so i think what i want to start with is uh i think we have to remember that um the darwinian um narrative is, is it presupposes the origin of life so in other words you cannot have evolution unless you already have life all right correct yeah uh so we're already giving them that all right they never really talk about that and i think that if you really want to hear a really good critique, very entertaining and uh, brilliant man named Dr. James Tour, you've probably heard of him. Yep. Uh, he's got some great podcasts and, uh, you know, he explains how um, the origin of life uh, thinking, you know, he, he ba- his background is he, he's a, he's a chair of um, organic chemistry, I think at uh, Rice University. Mm-hmm. And he's a, um, he's a s- synthetic uh, organic chemist and also a, uh, a nano engineer. So he pretty, he knows that stuff pretty well. I mean, he's, right. he's worked with it. So he, so, so I just want to get, take that. just want to mention that first. And the second thing is very important is that to rem- remind everybody that there's a lot, as Steve has taught me, there's a lot of hard problems. I mean, I was talking about how the body works, but you got to pull back and say, well, okay, what, how does that work? And why is it, what is it doing? Um, and so what I want to start with is something very important. And I want to start something in the cell. And I want to talk about this basic principle because of the origin of life being uh, from from chem- chemical evolution. So in other words, chemicals came together, they formed biologically significant molecules, and then they formed protocells. The cells became more you know, developed, and then they formed into multicellular organisms like us. And then you have evolution, which is natural selection acting on uh, random variation. So that basically, that's basically saying, if you think about it, the laws of nature, the forces of nature on their own, can bring about life. I mean, yeah. look at NASA. Every time they see water somewhere, they're saying, hey, we got life. We got life. Well, my point here, this is point, because it's not that simple. We're going to mention water here. So I think most people can understand that. And what I want to explain here is that the actual forces of nature when left to their own devices actually cause death, the exact opposite. All right. This, this, you, okay. And so, for example, uh, everyone can understand for the, for the, uh, for motion, right? There's certain uh, forces that prevent motions like um, inertia, 
uh, friction and gravity if you're going uphill, right? So you've got blood in your body and it needs to, it, it has all, you know, oxygen and nutrients you need. So if it's just sitting around, it's not going to do anything. It's got to be pumped somewhere. And that's why you have a heart. So there's, there's your innovation. You have a heart that uses energy to pump blood against inertia, friction. In this case, it's called vascular resistance and gravity. Okay. So now I want to apply that to two other forces of nature that most people are not aware of. And this applies to water and the cell. Now, what we're talking about is the cell membrane. Every cell is surrounded by a cell membrane. Of course, because if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have a cell, right? I mean, yeah. it's got a whole everything in there. And I would say that the DNA, you know, the, the chromosomes and the DNA and the genes, the ribosomes, the mitochondria, they're, they're, they have all the fame. Everyone knows about them. You know, all you have to do is play with those things and that's all you need. But, but the stalwarts out there is a cell membrane and something that, and then you have this certain thing in the cell membrane that's keeping you alive that most people aren't aware of. And the two forces of nature we're talking about are diffusion and osmosis. And what they do is these forces are, are, are at play when you have two solutions. In other words, water with chemicals in, in solution dissolved in them when they're separated by a membrane, right? So that's what we have here. It's probably uh, news to most people, but the, the as you know, you know, two thirds or sixty percent of your of your body is water, and that's about sixty or seventy percent of your cells consist of water, and they have chemicals in solution. Now, the fluid inside your cells have a have a very high concentration of potassium and a high concentration of protein, but a low concentration of sodium, and you have the cell membrane. On the other side of the cell membrane is the fluid that surrounds all the cells. All the fluid, all the cells are bathed in fluid. And that's called the extracellular fluid. And the fluid outside the cell is the exact opposite. It has a high concentration of sodium and a low concentration of potassium and protein. Now, let's talk about diffusion first. Diffusion is if you, if you have two chambers of water mixed with salt, right? And let's say one of them is is twice as much as twice as much concentrated than the other one. If you put a membrane between those two chambers that allows a permeable membrane that allows water and the salt to pass both ways, right? Diffu what diffusion does, this is an, you know, just like gravity, but diffusion is a force, natural force. The the salt that's in the higher concentrated fluid will naturally move to the one that's lower in concentration. So at the end of the day, you're going to have the same amount of volume in both chambers, but the, the, the concentration will be halfway in between. All right. Mm -hmm. Now let's, let's go back to the cell. You have cell membrane, the fluid on one, on the inside of the cell has a high concentration of potassium and a low concentration of sodium. And the water right outside the door on the other side of the cell membrane has a high concentration of sodium and a low concentration of potassium. And these are able, that for those chemicals, the cell membrane is permeable. So potassium and sodium can cross and so can water. So I'm asking you, Pat, what do you think is going to happen if you let nature take its course and just say, hey, we've got these two solutions. What's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, what's the potassium and sodium going to do? Sounds like you're dead is the short answer. Well, or what's, where are they going to move? <laughs> They're going to uh, move across, right? Exactly. So so the natural natural tendency is potassium to go out of the cell into the outside fluid and for the sodium in from outside the fluid to go in because it's the high concentration, right? Yeah. So, so, the, so that's, that's what nature is actually going to do right mm -hmm. now. The second thing you've got, now we get into osmosis. It becomes a little more complicated, but really interesting. So osmosis, let's go back to the, 
let's go back to those those two chambers of fluid that have saline or salt solution. One's twice as much as the other. Okay. Now you put a membrane between them, but instead of being permeable, where both can go across water and the salt, you make it semi-permeable. And what that means is the water can cross, but the salt can't, mm. right? Now, nature is still going to try to make both sides equal. But what happens in osmosis is that because the salt can't cross over, the water goes instead. So the water goes in the opposite direction. So the water from the chamber with the the more the the less the lower amount of salt will naturally move into the area with higher concentration to dilute it. So at the end of the day, both sides will still have you know a concentration right halfway in between. Okay, but the key thing is the one chamber will have more water than the other. Mm. Okay, so the one that had a higher concentration of, of saline salt in the beginning will now have more volume. Okay, so let's go back to the cell. Right. This apply now we're looking at the cell membrane. You have the water inside the cell, which has a high amount of protein, and you have water outside the cell that has a low amount of protein. Proteins are huge molecules. You don't want them leaving the cell anyway, right? Mm -hmm. You're making all these proteins and they're just leaving wherever they want to go. Protein cannot cross the so so the protein cannot cross the cell membrane. So with respect to protein, the cell membrane becomes semi-permeable. So what's going to happen? There's going to be a tendency for water to enter into the cell. So basically, what happens is when nature take if let nature take its course, diffusion and osmosis, as this will allow potassium to come out of the cell and sodium and water to enter the cell, hmm. and 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 taken to its natural ends, what will happen long before the concentration on either side becomes the same, the the volume of the cell will expand. And don't forget, it it has a physical limitation. It's like a tire, right? Yeah. It literally dies by explosion. Wow. Okay. So the question becomes, once again, just like we had the heart, has to you need the heart, the innovation of the heart to pump blood against against inertia, friction, and gravity. We need to we need an innovation in the cell membrane, right, to prevent this from happening. Okay. Now, if you're in a boat and you got water coming in, how do you get rid of it? How do you, this is basically what's going on. You, you got water coming pump, into the right. <laughs> pump, right. Yeah. You bail it out. In fact, there's these self-bailing, you know, self-bailing pumps. Okay. And that's exactly what you have in the cell membrane. Yeah. You have something called a, so it's actually called a sodium pump or sodium potassium pump. And so you actually have about a million of them in every one of your cells. All right. So what it does is it's pump, it uses energy. Okay. From ATP, it grabs energy and it pumps for every three ions of sodium it pumps out of the cell, it pump, at the same time, it pumps two ions of potassium in. Now, wow. the reason why this takes so much energy is this is like walking, a, you know, from up north, you know, you're walking against a driving wind, okay? And you know that takes energy, right? Well, that's what's going on. The, the sodium is like a wind trying to come in from the outside into the cell, and the potassium is like a wind going out. And these pumps are literally pushing the sodium back, you get back to where you were. You go back to where you were, the potassium, okay? And when it keeps the sodium out, it keeps the water out too, all right? Yes. So while we're sitting here, this is how much energy it takes. Is that why I'm so tired? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Be that or might be, my, might be my five children a little yeah. bit as well. <laughs> it's probably, probably your mitochondria. Anyway, but while we're sitting here, at, 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 when you're at total rest, one quarter of all the energy your body uses is for these one million 
of sodium pumps in your 30 plus trillion cells. That's, I think it's three times 10 to the 19 uh, uh, sodium pumps. Now, Incredible. Here, here's a question, because I, I sort of looked this up. I said, well, where, where did this evolve from, right? You know, I looked online and said, what's the evolution of the sodium pump? Well, they say, hey, you know, animal cells need sodium pump. And, you know, some of them are a little different from other animals, but it definitely evolved, you know. And that to me is sort of like, you know, I'm out in the road and I see a car and I see an SUV and I see a truck. You know, they all happen to have motors. They must have evolved, you know. But we're hoping when when you hear now, we do talk briefly about this sodium pump in, in the chapter on the cell. But you but the natural question would be, okay, how do you put this thing together? It's got a molecular structure. Yeah. How does it get its energy? Right. Boy, isn't it lucky it just happens to be in the right place. Right. In right. the cell membrane. It's not sitting in the nucleus, not sitting in the mitochondria, the ribosomes. It's right in the cell membrane. Right. It happens to know what to do. Uh-huh. It's pumping out. And why is it three? I don't even know the answer. I'm not sure the answer. It's got something to do with chemistry, obviously. But why is it three ions for sodium and two for potassium? Why isn't it the reverse or five and one? Who knows? Right. And here's the key thing. There's a million of them. About a yeah. million or several hundred thousand. I mean, what if you only had 10 or 100 or 1,000, right? It would be like having a yacht with one little self-bailer somewhere off in the corner, right? You know, <laughs> there's no way that yacht's, that's, you know, that yacht's sinking. So, so it's the same thing here. You know, we, not only do they – all those are the typical questions that an engineer would be – a person who wants to know how this thing works. And I have a further question. Um, and again, uh, this is not my specialty, so this is a genuine question. Um but it seems like when asking, you know, how did this evolve, it almost assumes that we already had a cell there and then we had to get the pump in. But from what you just described, it seems like if that if that isn't there from the get go, there just there isn't be a cell. If there was something like a cell, it would quickly have been expunged from existence and there would be nothing for the force of evolution to even work on. You see what I'm oh, no, exactly. getting at here? Do you think that's correct? Exactly. So Dr. Tour, he, he taught what he talks about is just getting, you know, he talks about the cell memory. He go, he talks from a level before that they can't even get the, they can't even get the proper bio biochemicals together and, and put it together. But this is just the next step. I mean, obviously you have, this is the, my yeah. point about evolution. You have to have life already. You have to have the cell working the way it is right now, you know, uh, at least some some it's able to re, it's able to divide okay grow and divide multiply eventually you get reproduction and you have to have the ability for it to develop get energy I mean like look at for cellular respiration there's 23 different enzymes that are all involved in that you know which one came first I mean those are all typical questions uh, that anyone yeah, who, you even, know. even reproduction I just just not to switch gears too quickly but I mean it just seems like you need reproduction you know fundamentally for evolution as an explanation yet isn't reproduction supposed to be something that evolution was <laughs> supposed to itself explain right it seems like we have a pretty classic chicken and egg circularity issue here right on as well yeah. right and i know there's attempts at like well maybe there's like proto replication and stuff like that but i've never seen any yeah. accounts where that actually is anything but a, a wild just so story I right or steve, would it just would it just push the issue down to a deeper level right I, I think steve calls it the mother of all chicken or egg uh uh problems but but um but I think the other thing, of course, when I've written about, we've written about this is you have to have the male and female with respect to sexual reproduction, mm-hmm. male and female have to come together at the same time. So all the differences and that that's another discussion, you know, yeah. all the, all the different uh, organ systems and the control mechanisms, et cetera, they all have to be in, in the, you know, testosterone, estrogen, whatever, whatever they do to eventually get the, yeah. the sperm and the, and the egg. 
they all have to be in existence first to mm -hmm. actually get sexual reproduction. So that's that itself is is one of the chicken or egg type of questions. Yeah, lots of chicken and egg stuff that seems to be going on in this in, in all of this, which is a fascinating to think about. So going back now, sorry, I, I diverted a little bit away, but yeah. keep, a, keep focusing back on these the, these amazing pumps, million of them. Wow million of them so what i'd like to do is extend from there and then just say okay so technically when your heart stops and your breathing stops or we all know that the the chemical you need in your body and this is how the this, the book is written i mean we, we base it on chemicals what's the most what's the most important let's think like an engineer and a doctor right what is the most important chemical or molecule in the body like the one that if you don't have you die the soonest right but what is it what what you know, you got the body and what, what is it that your biggest limiting factor for life? And that's oxygen, right? Because mm -hmm. because the body can't store oxygen, right? It can store, you know, you die in three or four minutes if you don't have a new supply of oxygen. So that's why if your heart stops or your breathing stops, you don't have a new supply of oxygen. The uh, brains, the cells in the respiratory center die and you got nothing to tell you to breathe, right? And what I maintain is one of the reasons why they die is that all their sodium pumps stop working. OK, mm -hmm. yeah. there's there's multiple reasons. Obviously, the cell has a lot of functions, et cetera. You know, the enzymes not working, et cetera. So 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 you need to control oxygen. So, you know, if you hold. So let's talk about that. I want to go through because we're going to get into something called cascading uh, problems. Mm. So if you're a unicellular organism, right, you're not a problem. You're, you're in the water. You can get everything you need from the water and get rid of what you don't need in the water. But what happens when you have a multicellular organism like us, like 30 plus trillion cells? This is the reason why you have all these organ systems because you need oxygen, but most of your cells aren't, you know, first of all, they're in air and they're not in water anyway. So they, so you have to have a, you got to get oxygen in, you got to you know, get it into your body. So you have the respiratory system. So there's all that, all those parts. You got to think about the nose, the mouth, the trachea, the airways, you know, bronchi and bronchioles, et cetera. You got the alveoli. So all that structure within the chest wall, right? The muscles to move the lungs, et cetera, right? So if you hold your, but then the question is, okay, well, we got the lungs, but if you notice, if you hold your breath, what happens? You, you're holding your breath and you feel like breathing, right? You, you get this urge to breathe. So what mm -hmm. is that? Okay. Well, how do you control something? You got to control the oxygen and carbon dioxide in your body. In order to do that, you need at least three things. You need a sensor to detect what you're trying to control. Mm. You need, you know, uh, basically an analyzer or a, uh, control logic to take that information and say, okay, yeah, it's right. It's okay. Goldilocks is doing fine or no, it's too high or too low. We got to do something about it. And then that, that effector then has to send messages or something to a, to an effector or target tissue to do something. So what happens in breathing? You have carbon dioxide and oxygen sensors in the main arteries leading to your brain. You also have carbon dioxide sensors inside your brain, right? So when you're holding your breath and you're still all your, 30 trillion cells are using up oxygen and making carbon dioxide. That's what happens in cellular respiration. So the oxygen level starts to drop. The carbon dioxide level starts to rise. Those messages are sent to the respiratory center in the brainstem. And it says, oh, Houston, we got a problem. You better take a breath, right? Now you can hold your breath, but you notice the longer you hold it, the stronger the message. I mean, you could just make a you know, make a cartoon of this of the respiratory center <laughs> getting upset at you. Say, come on, you better take a breath. You want to die or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So eventually you take a breath, Okay. Now, how do you do that? Well, the, the respiratory center sends a nerve message along the two main nerves, the, the phrenic nerve that goes to your diaphragm and also the thoracic nerves that go to the intercostal muscles. They contract 
and it opens up the chest wall, excuse the chest cavity expands and like a vacuum, air just suck, gets sucks into your lungs, goes down into your alveoli, and from there it gets into your bloodstream. So this is how you get oxygen into your body and this is how you control it, right? And the other thing to consider is, well, what happens when you start running around and stuff? You know, well, the, the respiratory system seems to know how fast you should breathe. So, so this is how you begin getting oxygen to the body. But, but really, the, the problem is you want to get oxygen to all the cells in your body, right? I mean, ultimately, I mean, if you, you bring it into your lungs, you get into your blood. If it's sitting there in the lungs or in the blood, it's, it's not useful. So, so that's the beginning. So already from the neo-Darwinian perspective, like, well, how do you explain that? I mean, we're told that... You know, fish in the water, right? Came out on land, and now, and they, and so they were using gills to get oxygen. And now, you know, they came on land and they evolved lungs because they needed them, right? Well, it seemed to be a lot of missing there, right? Yeah, it's more than just that, for it's sure. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. But now we get into it. So this is where we get into cascading problems. Everything's a problem. Remember, these are hard problems that the body has to innovate, come up with an answer. So we've already innovated for the oxygen by having lungs. Mm-hmm. A respiratory and a respiratory control center in the brain that tells you how, how to breathe, etc. So now we run into a problem because it ends up that oxygen doesn't dissolve well in water. Okay, very very poor amount of. And so if if that was the way, because you know your your blood consists of cells, red cells, white cells, but mainly red cells, and you got fluid, plasma or, or serum. So the water, this is where the oxygen goes into the solution, but it's very very small amount. To the point where you know, we talked about how when you're at rest, the, if that was the only way your, your body could transport oxygen to the blood, you would only be able to have 6% of the amount of oxygen you need for how much oxygen you use at rest. Mm-hmm. So you need, you need a way to transport that oxygen better in the blood, right? And that's why you have hemoglobin, right, which is made in red blood cells. So that's, what, so that's another innovation, okay? Hey, that's great, all right? You got red blood cells uh, that are in the bone marrow. Uh, they make hemoglobin, uh, and their hemoglobin is a very complicated uh, molecule. It contains iron because it's the iron that's in hemoglobin that actually grabs the oxygen that they uh, transport it. And when the red cells make enough hemoglobin, then they get, they get pushed out of the bone marrow into the into the um, bloodstream. So you got that problem solved. However, we just said you know you got to have enough hemoglobin to have enough oxygen carrying capacity. So once again, we got to be able to control the hemoglobin and red blood cell count. How do you do that? Well, interesting enough, in the kidney cells, there's a there's a sensor for oxygen, or which is equivalent to red cell mass. And in response to your oxygen level, it sends out a hormone called erythropoietin, right? So erythro referring to red, red blood cells. So EPO, right? It makes a hormone and that hormone goes in the blood and it attaches to Receptor, specific receptors on the uh, stem cells in the bone marrow. And it says, hey, you know, you, you want, we want you to become a red blood cell and start making hemoglobin, right? So if the oxygen level goes down, the kidney cells detect that, they send out more erythropoietin. And, and so the bone marrow takes, you know, takes care of that. So the bone marrow compensates. And if the hemoglobin level is adequate, then the erythropoietin is, is at a basal level. Uh, so that's another control problem, yeah, right? But then we run into another problem, and that is, as we just said, that the hemoglobin needs iron, right? But where is that going to come from? Mm. And, of course, the difficulty with iron is that, you know, if you don't have enough iron, you can be anemic, and that's not good. You know, don't make enough red cells. But if you have too much iron, it can be very toxic to many of your organs. So iron has to come in through the 
the duodenum actually, but through the intestinal cell. And uh, it's controlled. In fact, they've only learned about this in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, the liver stores iron in something called ferritin. And it also detects how much iron there is by, by assessing how much iron is in the cell. And it sends out a hormone called hepcidin. And the hepcidin goes to the duodenal cell and it says, it tells it actually not to absorb iron. So just because the iron goes in the intestinal cell doesn't mean that it's going to get into the bloodstream. It has to go through a specific gate called the ferroportin gate. And the hepcidin controls that. So the liver through the hepcidin controls that gate. And if the iron level goes too high in the body, then the liver sends out two, more hepcidin to tell the duodenal cell not to take in the iron. And then the iron stays in the cell. And then as the cells are shed after about 10 or 12 days, it goes out through the bowel. So that's how the iron comes out of the body. So, you know, and also on top of that, iron can't, uh, float, doesn't float very well in blood. So the liver also makes a, um, a protein called uh, transferrin. You know, we great name. <laughs> yeah, and, creative. Uh-huh. And then you have to ask yourself, well, okay, we got this transferrin's carrying iron all over the body. How do we make sure it gets to where it's needed? I mean, we don't want we don't want all the other we don't want the heart to get too much iron. We don't want the brain to get too much iron. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it ends up that the bone marrow, the cells in the bone marrow that uh, the stem cells that, that are going to develop in the red blood cells, they have a very very high concentration of transferrin receptors. So you can see how the system works. You make a hormone. Uh, the hormone has to attach to a receptor, uh, and then that triggers you know that triggers that. Uh, that cell to do something. In this case, uh, when the transfer attaches to these uh, receptors in the high, highly concentrated receptors in the uh, developing red blood cells in the bone marrow, and then so most of your red cells get the uh, get the iron and as muscle cells need it for myoglobin, etc. But but that's so that's how you deal with the iron. Okay, and then you, then you got another problem which we've alluded to before, and that is okay. Well, we got oxygen going, but what happens? You know, I'm at rest. I'm not doing anything. But what happens when we get very active, you know, mm-hmm. obviously it's like you're driving your car. If you wanted to go faster, you got to give it more gas, right? Same thing here. You need more oxygen. That's why people who have, who have COPD, they got an emphysema. They have problems when they get active because their lungs can't handle it or someone with heart, yeah. failure, weak heart, they can't handle it. They can't mm-hmm. be as active. And so you have the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system that turns on when uh, you're, you're more active uh, and, and sends certain chemicals to make that you breathe harder and faster and your heart to pump harder and faster, et cetera. So, you know, so that, that, that is what has to be solved just to get enough oxygen to every cell in your body. You not only do you need the respiratory system, you need the, con- and its control system and the nervous system, of course, you need hemoglobin and all that control system. You need iron and the control system and you need the, cardiovascular system so that's where it's injured into- wow it's it's and- so incredible because the picture that was just painted and i really am amazed like i always knew generally that the body was an amazing thing but once you get into the details oh the details mm. are, are are really quite glorious you have again this picture of this functional interrelatedness not just of parts but mutual dependency among systems it sounds like is is, is that correct Yes, um, and on top of it, if I could just add, you also have what I call autodependency or cir- causal circularity because the organs are dependent on their own function. Think of this, right? The lung cells need oxygen, but that's what they do. They bring in oxygen, right? The, 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 the heart, the heart tissue, it needs yeah. a blood supply, and that's what they do, right? The blood vessels as well. So, so not only is it interdependent, but there's this causal circularity all over the, all over the yeah. place and chicken, chicken or egg problems everywhere. And I think like the, the natural sort of belief that is occasioned in us when we 
hear about something like that, it's described to us, or we just see something like that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a product of somebody who can relate things via, you know, um, by having ideas, right? <laughs> that's just like the, right. the natural thing that we think, like, oh, wow, if you have a system that is this, not just complex, right, but it has these these sort of loops in it, right? These, then, the, uh, like the, the you, you pointed out that, uh, a particular system even depends on its own function, which is fascinating. Well, how do you get something like that online? Well, it seems like there has to be a sort of a, an exemplar of it, if you want, right, in the mind of somebody that can relate different parts, you know, in the in the mental realm before actually, you know, bringing it about in the, in the physical. And that just that just seems profoundly obvious uh, to me, right? And I think I think it is profoundly obvious to most people because the natural belief that we get from that is that somebody thought about this before it was brought into being right now my question there then is like that seems like really powerful and again i don't think anyone would deny that we would normally have that make that uh type of of inference or have that sort of belief occasion in us when when we have something like that described to us you i'm sure around many other uh more medical professionals uh than i am and in fact you know most of the medical professionals that i'm around do believe in god actually i don't know what the the stats are on it these days. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd just be curious, like, you know, you're going through medical school and you're studying these systems. How doesn't everybody have more of the kind of, <laughs> you know, aha moment that you did? Like, hey, there's something fishy going on about this, especially if, and I'm going to qualify, right? Especially if they then go to look to the literature for a detailed explanation. And this is something that Michael Behe, you know, tells in his story. He's like, hey, you know, I went to the literature to find out you know, what's, what's the deal here? What's the, what's the actual evolutionary story behind these things? Mm. And there's nothing detailed there. You kind of get these, these just so stories, uh, that he obviously found super inadequate. Uh, so what's, what's going on there? What's that actually, cause you know, a natural pushback to this type of thing will be like, well, look, you know, there's so many doctors and scientists and biologists that, that don't have that aha moment that you had, Dr. Glitzman. Uh, so so why is that, do you think? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm not them. But I, I think I, it's really hard to know. I think that um, I just want to mention before we go on that everything I just described, that's just for oxygen. Right. Now, I, can, <laughs> I can go do the exact same thing for water, sugar, calcium, and when, don't forget, and blood pressure. Don't forget that every single one of those, if, if they're not in the right range, you die. Okay. Wow. So um, one of the things that I, I found very interesting in this, in, in with working with Steve Lofman, and I fought him tooth and nail writing when we were putting the book together, and, and then I finally relented. I'm so happy we I did follow what he was doing because what he wanted because he's an engineer was there's a section on connective tissue. We call and we call we call connective tissue like the Rodney Dangerfield of the body, you know because. It's the nervous tissue and the, and the glandular tissue and the, and the muscles. They get all their fame. Just, just like I said in the, in the cell where the, you got the cell membrane and you got these grunts. You got these sodium potassium pumps working every second, but nobody knows about them, right? But yeah. if you don't have them, your cell is gone. Okay. Mm -hmm. Same thing here. Be, so, so it's very important your connective tissue of what holds everything together. You got a car, you got the engine, you got the steering wheel, you got the brake, but what's holding all that together, right? Mm -hmm. No one thinks about that. And on the other side is the development uh, because you know, starting, how do you, how do you start this up? How do you put it all together? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think a lot of doctors think that way here. When I was writing about all this, I, 
I wasn't really writing. I mean, I did. Steve said to me, Howard, you're writing about medicine, but you don't realize you're also also writing about engineering. And part mm-hmm. of that was because I was writing in a different way. I was actually throwing in numbers and you know the fine tuning, et cetera, which I think alerted him to that. But by covering development, the question is, how do you build this? How do you build these things? And also the, the connective the connective tissue that holds everything together. And doctors don't necessarily think that way. You know, he's brought me. I mean, I was already there. Right. And frankly, when you're writing this thing and, you know, I'm hoping when people are reading this book that it's going to put you on your knees. I mean, imagine me writing this stuff. Right. I had to go back and try to explain it. And uh, I can't tell you how many times, Laura, you are so awesome. I mean, <laughs> I'm into that. Because, because what I just told you. Right. And I explain I could go even heck of a lot more detail. Than of that. course, That's just, I'm um, trying to just get the, you know, the what we call in Canada, the Coles Coles notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sparks Sparks notes or something like that in America, right? Yeah, and I can do that. And there's other parts that I'm really, really into, like how the kidney work, all that sort of stuff. And you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't understand why people don't, why it's not so obvious to people. So Uh, just, just, just to draw it out, if you don't mind, Howard, that you know, the reason this is a problem for for Darwin's mechanism is that these systems are only sort of up and operational and functionally useful to the extent that they could provide a survival benefit when there's this huge incredible array of interrelated functional dependence mm-hmm. and coordination and so it's like how would you ever get up to this point through darwin like that it just it doesn't seem like there's really a believable possibility space right <laughs> and i want to i want to be clear about that we're not saying this is logically impossible as a contradiction to say in the space of believable possibilities this is it's not there it's not it's virtually it's virtually impossible we might let, say. Me, let me yeah. answer um um uh, let me talk to that a bit yeah i want to tell you how the darwinists deal with this okay yeah. so one of the, remember i told you the thing i was really in that what really got me writing about this was the was the bones and calcium all right so basically it's very important to keep your calcium level in your bloodstream under control. And that's managed by something called the parathyroid glands. You got four of them, one in each corner of your thyroid, thyroid area. Okay. And they actually have a sensor for calcium and they can detect calcium. Once again, the whole control mechanism, you have to, to have a control mechanism. You need at least three. Now from, from what I've learned from Steve, there's probably five or six parts, but I know it as a doctor is three is much more complicated to an engineer, but you need a sensor to detect the calcium level. And then based on that calcium level, the parathyroid gland sends out a certain amount of parathyroid hormone, all right? And then that hormone goes throughout the body into the bone and the kidney, right? And it attaches to specific receptors. And the way it affects the bone and the kidney and vitamin D production is how you control calcium. Now, here's, here's the answer. So I once looked up the evolution of calcium control in the body. All right. And I know I see their trick. So you'll look up the calcium receptor or calcium sensor in the parathyroid gland, and they'll go into great detail about the molecular structure. They'll compare it with other organisms, et cetera. Okay. Then you go into, you look up the parathyroid hormone evolution, and they'll compare that to other animals and the molecular structure, highly detailed stuff, way beyond me. Right. And then you look at the parathyroid hormone receptor and look into that. And they talk about the same thing, right? In none of these articles do they ever say, by the way, you need all three of these for it to work. So it, they're all the articles, they isolate. What Darwinism does is any of these control systems, they isolate each part 
And so it's not what they say, it's what they don't say. And it requires mm-hmm. you to understand how, that's why I wrote the book. We wrote the book is it requires the person to understand, hey, that's not enough. You're explaining how the calcium receptor works. Okay, the calcium sensor. But how does how does the parathyroid gland cell know when to, to send out a certain amount and how much hormone to send out? What about the receptor? You need the receptor. So all three of these have to be in place yeah. in order in order for that control mechanism to even never mind for control mechanism to work, never mind the fine tuning that it, to, to make it work. You know, how sensitive is the receptor? How, how sensitive, you know, the, in the, the, excuse me, the parathyroid receptor, et cetera. What quote unquote, what's the half life of parathyroid hormone? In other words, how long does it last in the system? You know, if it lasts for hours, how, what kind of control it's got to be, you got to turn over every few seconds. It requires enzymes to break it down. So anyone who understands how these control things work, right, immediately can see, should see that the gradualism of Darwinism doesn't work. And this is how they do it. They, they separate the stuff. And I, I don't understand why they don't see it. Uh, you know, it's, but this, we bring this out in the book. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into the armchair sociology and, and psychology, but there's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, there are, it was Alvin Plantinga one time who said, yeah. you know, for, for the, for the atheist, like Darwinism is the only game in town, right? Like right. this has to work come hell or high water. And, you know, there's, there might be various other motivations of why somebody wants to have that worldview or something of, of that paradigm. And that, you know, again, just uh, don't want to get too deep into the speculations there. But at some point, like when something seems like so definitely false and you've shown that it is false, it then becomes a legitimate question to ask, well, why would people continue to believe it? <laughs> right. That now, if you just try to speculate on a psychology before showing that it's false, that's sort of, you know, fallacious. Mm-hmm. Right. But, it is, yeah. I think, it, but turning it around, you know, uh, people pointed out, you know, for the for the theist, for the Christian, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, if God wants to work through Darwinian processes, that's fine. So it's not like all oh, the eggs aren't in this basket. Right? It doesn't have to be false, right? If it ha- does happen to be false, bad news for a particular paradigm. But if it isn't false, it's not it's not the end of the world for uh, for the, for the alternative paradigm either. And I think it is important to kind of be aware of that, and maybe even. A lot of people who aren't uh, convinced by the things that you've trotted out, maybe they're not even totally aware of of the those other motivations themselves. And then there's also just tradition, right? I mean, I was I was brought up, you know, and with that story, and I had no reason to challenge it myself for the longest time. And in fact, I sort of ignored a lot of what was being said by the, even after I came to belief in God through other philosophical considerations, I still really didn't pay attention to intelligent design because when I was like, ah, it doesn't really matter that much. And uh, let's face it, there's been something of a PR problem, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because there's been so much, so, so many attacks have just been so unfair and just totally misrepresent the intelligent design community. But unfortunately, that's kind of what, uh, people have uh, have had imprinted uh, on their brains about intelligent design. But then, of course, I finally, for whatever reason, actually read some of the, the works like like Behe's. I'm like, wow, this is totally not what my impression was of it. And he's making some interesting points. Let me see how the opposite side responds. I look at the responses and I try to always be as thorough as I can. Let's see what the best people have to say. And I see this is really underwhelming. And then I would read a little bit more and be like, oh, man, it. it case is getting stronger for these guys and read some of the responses and again, find it really underwhelming. And, and so that's why I've said, you know, 
uh, I'm happy to take the, the, you know, the, the culturally unpopular position if I think that there's, there's truth in it. And I think that this, I think that is the case with intelligent design. I think there's a lot of truth in it. And there are serious, serious challenges here for the Darwinian paradigm that have not been adequately addressed. And I agree with Behe, and I think you as well, Dr. Glitzman, that it seems like the more we actually come to know scientifically, like this isn't, this is the classic charge. This is just an argument from ignorance. No, as Behe mm. claims, as I'm sure you claim, this is an argument from knowledge. The more we actually know scientifically about the world, right? About the cell, about the human body in general, the more we see that the Darwinian paradigm is explanatorily inadequate. So sorry, I threw a lot of stuff out there, but feel free right. to comment on, on well, any parts that you think are relevant. Yeah, a couple of things. I, I think what I've read is for some people that are really stick to the Darwinism and even the scientists themselves, I, my impression is that many of them think that they may not have the answer, but that someone in the Darwinian camp does. You know, right. There's always someone who may, may come up with it. The second thing I want to mention here is that I think there's a distinction from my perspective. Uh, I understand, I think you're sort of referring to theistic evolution. I know that there was a big, thick book, about a thousand pages that came out a few years ago with Ann Gager and Stephen Meyer about, about theistic evolution. The, the idea that, well, you know, God just did it Darwin's way, you know, and, but, but what we're basically saying is the Darwinian model, exactly as you were pointing out and Dr. Behe had said that, um, it just doesn't have the power and, and um, random, excuse me, natural selection acting on random variation. The other thing, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, Patrick, is that, um, a lot of Darwinists, when they, 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 they misapply natural selection, they actually think natural selection does something. It, it doesn't generate anything. So a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, this came about by natural selection. No, natural selection, all it does is it preserves what's, what's the, the information or the new, the new things that come about from genetic mutation or random variation. Okay. So you either get gene duplication or mutation or transfer or whatever else that you need. There's this, uh, within the culture, this misunderstanding that natural selection actually does something. All it does is, is preserve uh, what's that's come about from gen genetic mutation. So yes. I think they, they just don't understand that. Um, there was something else you mentioned. Uh, anyways, I, I think that the, uh, if you, uh, I'm pointing out that, you know, please read the book. Uh, I think one of the problems, of course, with intelligent design is it requires intelligence. You got to take your time and read this stuff and understand it. Uh, we, what we've tried to do here is uh, explain how everything works. Uh, we literally go through the entire body and recognizing that every system has to be working. And it's sort of the Goldilocks principle. And then every system within each system has to be working properly. Otherwise, you're dead. I mean, this this is the proof of it. I mean, right. uh, that's the reason why medicine, that's why you need the medical person to talk to this because, you know, he or she knows, especially as a hospice doctor, which I get asked all the time, like, how am I going to die? What's going on? What's going on? You know, what's happening? Once you understand that when this when this doesn't work, you know, you're, you're proposing X, Y, Z. Well, I can tell you, you're going to be dead. OK, it's not going to work. Sort of like what uh, Dr. Tour does with respect to the chemical evolution. Yeah. You know, he he knows the experiments. He knows what happens with those chem chemicals. You know, he has the experience. He can say, look, at that. you're just going to get trash. You, know, you think you're going to get it, but you're not going to. So I, I'm on the on the macro evolution part of things saying the body's going to die. Right. You know, we, we know this from experience. So it's, it's every person themselves to read it and think about it. And uh, it's very hard. And Steve does an excellent job in those last six chapters, I think, to go through everything you just talked about. It, it's all addressed. There. Of course. And there are, you know, important wider philosophical considerations, but we can uh, perhaps find the opportunity to continue this conversation with yourself or Steve. But in the meantime, you've given us so much good stuff to think about. 
Howard, I really appreciate it. So remind us now, uh, so people can go further, where is the best place to get the book? Remind us of the title one more time. And I want to make sure that I encourage people to go and and snag a copy for themselves. Sure. The book is called Your Design Body. And um, you can go to www.yourdesignbody.com or it's available on Amazon. I think you get it in a Kindle form as well. So www.yourdesignbody.com. I think in the capital Y, capital D, and capital B in that. Perfect. So again, I want to encourage people to go grab a copy of that. And then Howard, how about for you? Any other projects coming up after uh, after this one or anything you want to tease or mention? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, uh, frankly, I'm... <laughs> If there's any cardiologist listening out there, please contact. I, you know, if they, I, I can't give my uh, contact information, but maybe through you. But I'm, I'm trying to reach out to cardiologists because I'm, I'm treating all these people who have a fluid overload, and I'm able to get their fluid off. And it's hard to convince the uh, people, out, you know, the people out in, in practice uh, to change their ways. Uh, it, it's, I bet. it's, yeah, it's a very uh, sort of paradigm shift in thinking, thinking outside the box. Uh, to, to get these people better. And it's hard to, for me to penetrate uh, the culture. And it's very frustrating when you see the patients come in and know you can get them better. So um, if there's any cardiologist that's listened to you, uh, I don't know if there's any way to. We can, they know my email. We can get, we can make the, uh, we can sure. put everyone okay. in contact. Yep, absolutely. If uh-huh. they're a cardiologist then send them to me and if they're interested in knowing how, how and what I do and the exp- I understand the pathophysiology of why, what's going on. I think there's just a, this is the reason why most of them end up in and out of the hospital and end up on hospice. Now, it wouldn't be good for hospice because if you get them better, there's fewer patients going on hospice, but it's great for the patient and the family. They love it. And that matters so, most, of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and that's, I guess that's that's about it right now. And just uh, getting the book out and uh, doing some speaking. We'll be, we'll be at, uh, if I can do a blatant uh, uh, talk about, uh, uh, there's a conference for science and faith in Dallas. Where are you? You're in uh, Wisconsin. Oh, you're in Wisconsin. Okay. In Dallas in, in February, we'll be talking and, and Dr. Tour will be there with uh, um, uh, Dr. Myers and uh, Stephen Meyer. Oh, so, that's, that's awesome. Well, I will definitely link to that in the show notes so people can uh, can check that out as well. That sounds like it would probably be of great interest to a lot of people of this of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's that's what's up right now. I can't think of uh, just seeing patients like today, you know. Yep. I saw a couple of people this morning. I'm going to go out this afternoon and see who I can save, you know? Yeah, well, God, ble- <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> yeah, God bless you, Howard. God bless you, your work on, on all the fronts. This has been a tremendous conversation. I thank you for taking the time to be here. And again, I'm going to encourage people to get the book. All the links will be in the show notes below. Uh, and yeah, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for, for tuning in. And Howard, I hope we can find the opportunity to continue this conversation again at some point. That was Howard Glicksman, co-author of Your Designed Body, speaking with Pat Flynn. I'll repeat the web address that Dr. Glicksman gave. It's yourdesignedbody.com, or you can purchase the book at Amazon. We hope you'll take the opportunity to do that, and we look forward to having you back with us next time. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.